Our passage today is Acts 28, verses 30 and 31. For the next two years, Paul lived in Rome at his own expense. He welcomed all who visited him, boldly proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ. And no one tried to stop him. This is the word of the Lord. It's good to be back with you at New Hope. Good to see everybody again. My wife uh, was an interim pastor here for a while in youth ministry, and so we worshiped here for several months uh, over, over 2022. Enjoyed it very much. Great to be back. As some of you know, Pastor John is one of my students. Uh, he's currently working on his homework. He says dog ate his homework. I don't know if I buy that, but um, pray for him. Pray for him. In all seriousness, I'm excited to be wrapping up the sermon series on the book of Acts on mission, and if I could encapsulate what these uh, sermons and messages have been about, I would say it this way. The church is filled with the Spirit and nurtured by fellowship, teaching, and spiritual practices and sent out into the world with the good news of Jesus Christ. We know the book of Acts as the Acts of the apostles. That's the kind of classic description of the book of Acts. And that's true that we learn about the adventures of Peter and Paul and others. But if you pay close attention to that scripture reading that we have from chapter 28 or other parts of the book of Acts, the focus actually shouldn't be on the apostles even though they're the ones carrying out a lot of the activity, it's actually about the kingdom of God. The expansion of the kingdom of God under the guidance of King Jesus, empowered by the Holy Spirit. It struck me as I was studying chapter 28 to talk about it this week, that Paul is in prison for two years, welcoming people in so he can preach to them the gospel. And what does he choose to talk about? He chooses to talk about the kingdom of God and the kingship of Jesus. And we realize all along that is the main message. So I went back because the book of Acts is kind of a sequel to the gospel of Luke. Most scholars and theologians have thought throughout the ages that this is kind of a two-book series. Luke is the story of Jesus and Acts is the story of of the church carrying out the ministry of Jesus. So I went back to Luke and Acts, and I looked at kingdom language to try to figure out what does Luke actually want to explain is the meaning of the kingdom of God. Jesus, in fact, in Luke chapter four, says this, I must, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God in other towns too, because that is why I was sent. Jesus was sent to embody and preach the kingdom of God. And in fact, even after he died and rose again and appeared to over 500 people, he spent 40 days speaking about the kingdom of God. Imagine how precious those 40 days are where people now know for sure that he's the risen Lord, there's no doubt he can show you the holes in his hands and his feet. 
And what does he want to talk about? He wants to talk about the kingdom. So I looked at Luke and Acts to try to figure out, but what does this kingdom actually mean? What is it all about? Because we hear that language, kingdom of God. What is Luke trying to communicate? I tried to boil it down to four things. Number one, the kingdom belongs to the least and the last. The kingdom belongs to the least and the last. If I were Jesus, God come to earth, I, would, I might want to go talk to kings and magistrates, to the quote-unquote important people. And as we follow Jesus around the Gospel of Luke, we see that Jesus is often with the least and the last, offering them the kingdom of God. My wife and I, when we get a free evening, which isn't very often, we, watch, we like to watch The Chosen. How many of you have watched The Chosen, an episode of The Chosen before? Um, there, you know, some people love it, some people don't. I actually really like it. We watched an episode last night about uh, the healing at the, at the pool of Bethesda, uh, Bethesda, which is about this man who had legs that didn't work, and uh, he went to this pool to try to be healed by these stirred up waters. They believe that there is some kind of uh, spiritual activity in these stirred up waters, and he couldn't actually get into the pool because of the crowds. He was prevented because there were so many other people trying to get into that pool. And Jesus uh, finds him there and says to him, do you want to be healed? And he complains about the waters and the crowds, and Jesus says, do you want to be healed? And this is one of those beautiful moments uh, and, and, and if you watch the show, and I'm not attributing inspiration to the show, divine inspiration, but if you watch the show, this particular episode, Jesus is on a mission to find this person. And, and in the show, and again, you know, it's creative, but in, in the show, he goes to the person that's been there the longest, the most desperate amongst the people there. And even though the, the directors and producers are coming up with this, I think it fits Jesus. It fits Jesus because he cares about the least and the last and the lost. So whereas other kingdoms try to woo the best and the brightest and the biggest and the richest and the most powerful, Jesus is giving handwritten personal invitations to the least, the last, the disempowered. The kingdom belongs to the least and the last. Number two, the kingdom of God knows no boundaries or limits. The kingdom of God knows no boundaries or limits. I think of Jesus' parable of the mustard seed, where you plant this insignificant tiny seed, and then you go to bed, and in the morning, it's, it's this massive tree. And the whole point of it is, it's a mystery how something so small could become so large, with no limitations or boundaries. No limitations or boundaries. I don't know what kind of neighborhood or area you live in, but in our area, the house that we bought have these wonderful trees that know no boundaries or limits, so their roots just go everywhere, and you have to work with them if you don't want to kill them. And, you know, we try to cut them back and all these other things, but the beauty of that image is these trees are strong and powerful and if they're healthy, they just keep growing. And this is Jesus' vision for the kingdom. It knows no boundaries or limits, meaning we can keep inviting people. The room's just gonna get bigger. 
It's a beautiful, expansive vision. Number three, the kingdom is confirmed by miraculous healing. Healing at the hands of Jesus in the Gospels and healing often at the hands of the apostles in the book of Acts. And when I was young, I used to think the healings were just like cool party tricks to prove that Jesus is God. Now I do think that the healings tell us something about God. But the main point of the healings is to show how God's kingdom works over and against the destructive kingdoms of the world. The powers of the world, the enterprises of the world have a damaging, often have a damaging effect on people's lives. So when Jesus is healing, he's confronting Satan. He's confronting sin, right? The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. I came that they might have life and have it to the full, and his healings are a demonstration of that. He's reversing the effects of the kingdoms of this world. He's bringing life where our kingdoms too often bring death. Lastly, the kingdom requires perceptive and radical faith. The kingdom requires perceptive and radical faith. I spent a long time as a historian studying the Roman Empire. And I don't know if you know this, but when Rome wants more territory, they don't make an invitation. They go to war, right? They plunder, they destroy, they conquer, and they enslave. That's not an opinion. That's the history books. When empires expand, when our worldly empires expand, they take by force and through destruction and conquest, right? What does Jesus do? What does the kingdom of God do? It invites, and our response is faith. But it's faith in something you can't see, so it's radical, right? The kingdom of God is a vision and a dream And we have to sign up by faith and say, I believe there can be a kingdom that is better than destruction that we see in the world. And it requires perception. It requires a kind of spiritual insight. This is why some people get who Jesus is right away when we look at the Gospels and the book of Acts. Some people say, you have the words of eternal life. You're someone special. And Jesus says, you can freely be a part of this kingdom and enjoy all of its benefits. The reality is the way that Jesus and the apostles talk about the kingdom of God, it's meant to be an alternative to many of the wicked ways of the kingdoms that we have built on earth. Remember the garden, the temp- sorry, not the garden, but the temptation in the wilderness, right? And what does Satan do? He takes Jesus up to the highest place and shows him all the lands. And he says, all the glories of these kingdoms can be given to you if you bow down to me. And Jesus says, no, because the one great kingdom of God is brought to earth to overturn the ways of those other kingdoms. So if I had to summarize what I think Luke is trying to say about the kingdom of God, I would say this. The kingdom of God is a people living out a common life that reflects the good ways of King Jesus and rejects the wicked ways of the abusive, 
exclusive and destructive. We're here in this room because we believe that the kingdom of God has the power to overturn and reject the wicked ways of the abusive, exclusive, and destructive. Amen? What are the opposites of that? Generosity, forgiveness, healing, invitation, grace, hospitality, warmth, friendship, new life, new homes. These are the arms and legs of the church to go out and do good in the world. I am grieved that the reputation of Christianity in America is hate, closed-mindedness, rejection, locked doors, suspicion. I believe in truth. I believe lines need to be drawn around what the gospel is and what the gospel isn't. But when you read Luke and Acts... It's this vision of an expansive kingdom where everybody can make it to healing, right? I fly a lot now for work, and uh, I, because I fly so much, I have elite status. I literally have elite status, which is kind of nice because my wife doesn't, and so I'll be like, bye, <laughs> bye, honey, TSA pre-check. Um, I remember the old days where I had to be like, you know, group Z. <laughs> and now, you know, I, I get to be in like group B. And it's nice, but it just reminds me of the fact that we live in a world like that, where there are the Zs and the Bs. And you either got it or you don't. The kingdom of God is just not like that. There are no Bs and no Zs. Someone asked you how the sermon was, you just say to them, there's no B's and no Z's in the kingdom of God. <laughs> Let's see what they make of that. I don't know. Now that's gonna make, if you say there is a kingdom with no B's and no Z's, it's gonna make some people really happy and it's gonna make some people really upset because there are a lot of B's out there. No wonder then some of the Thessalonians in the book of Acts complain about the apostles saying, these people have turned the world upside down. Acts chapter 17, verse six. They're not saying that in a good way. They're saying, these are troublemakers. These people are causing problems. They're shaking things up and we don't like it. That's part of the church's mission. We have to be willing to turn things upside down. Speaking of world upside down, there's a book by a scholar named Kevin Rowe. I actually had my doctoral students uh, read this book last time I had a class where we were studying the church. And I revisited this book recently as I was thinking about the book of Acts and this sermon. I want to share with you a line from the book that has really stuck with me about what the book of Acts is all about. Now, I'm going to use some academic jargon. Some of you are getting really excited about that and nerd out about it. But for the rest of you who are like, oh, no, I'm going to try to break it down into, uh, into more sensible meaning. 
But let me give you the academic part. Cavanagh is trying to explain the theology of Acts, and he says, ecclesiology is public Christology. Ecclesiology is public Christology. What does that mean? Ecclesiology is the nature of the church, the being of the church. And Christology is who Christ is. So basically what Roe is saying is the Christian mission embodies the pattern of Jesus' own life. We, the church, because Christ has ascended and now stands at the right hand of God interceding on our behalf, we are the public presence of Christ in the world. That doesn't make us Jesus. There's only one Jesus. But just as Paul can call the church the body of Christ, we are the public-facing representation of Christ. Public Christology. Jesus in public. And I call this sermon, Jesus Going Public. And here's the big idea I want you to remember from today. The church broadcasts the person, message, and lifestyle of Jesus. The church broadcasts, magnifies, extends, presents, amplifies the person, message, and lifestyle of Jesus Christ. Let's go through each of these parts one at a time. Person. When we talk about witnessing, we're talking about pointing to a person. Christianity isn't just an idea. It's not just a philosophy. It's not just a theology. It's not just a community. It's a person. We're fixated on this one person, and we represent that person now as the church. We are the body of Christ. Second, message. The whole point of the book of Acts is that these apostles are called to be public advocates for Jesus. And on many occasions, most occasions, we testify with words as Paul did in prison. And finally, lifestyle. We aren't meant to just represent and broadcast Jesus in words, but also in deed by what we do with our bodies and our actions. Our bodies and actions are transcripts of the kingdom of God. Just like Paul said to the Corinthians, you, your whole self, your body, you are a letter of Christ. You are a recommendation letter for Christ. Not just in your words, but in your whole being. And that raises a difficult question for us. What do our lives represent? What do our lives reflect? What do our lives sponsor? Because I'll tell you this, our lives reflect something. The things we invest our life in, our money, our time, our words, we're promoting something or someone. My son and I have clothing wars because he, he's team Nike and I'm team Adidas. So we have a little bit of clothing wars there and, you know, we, we, we have our... We have our gang symbols. <laughs> but I'm not talking about clothing. 
the substance of our life, what we care about, what we talk about, what we invest in, says something about what we're all about. But speaking of clothing, sometimes it's helpful to imagine. So I want you to look at this NASCAR, uh, NASCAR jersey. Uh, this is a good visual representation of what, you know, what someone is invested in, right? Because they just put the sponsors on there. Like usually in other sports, there may be one sponsor, right? But in NASCAR, they just, they just put all of them on there. And I just like, the reason I chose this one, I just like how big the M&M symbol is. Like what does M&M have to do with NASCAR? And it's kind of humorous, but it says something, and I wonder if the sizes of them represent a bigger chunk of money, I don't know. But uh, about five, six years ago, someone created this imaginatively for politicians. Let's put the politician one up there. Now, I blurred it out so you don't start complaining about this political view or that political view. But it's interesting just to look at, this isn't a real picture, by the way. That's going to confuse some people. This is imagining if you were to show the lobby money for a politician and where that money comes from, right? What would they wear? And it's funny, but I want to ask you, if we were to write onto your clothes the things you represent, the entities, the values, what would it say? What would it say? Would it say Netflix? <laughs> right? Costco? I love Costco, by the way. I don't know if that's a confession or what. Praise? I don't know what, but I love Costco. But it's an interesting thought. And I'm not saying any of these things are specifically bad that we care about or love, like Nike or Adidas, or our sports teams that we love. But the book of Acts is clear that the biggest thing written on our lives needs to be Jesus. Amen. You are meant to take Jesus public. But isn't that scary? Isn't that scary that people will formulate their opinion about Jesus based on you and me and other Christians? And we have to admit, sometimes we've got it wrong, right? Sometimes Large groups of us have got it wrong, and it hurts the reputation of Jesus. But I have good news. The book of Acts, especially chapter 28, where we're ending on today, gives us guidance and guardrails. So we're going to go back through person, message, lifestyle in a, in, an, in a different order. But first, I want to give you just a bird's eye view of chapter 28, because this is an adventure-packed chapter of the book of Acts, and I didn't want to make us read the whole entire chapter up front, but I do want to go through it. So, last week, Pastor John introduced you to kind of a sequence of events that happens at the end of the book of Acts, where Paul has been arrested and has to stand trial in Rome. So he has to go on a boat journey on the open seas to get to Rome, but the problem is the crew and uh, the Roman soldiers were not fully prepared for that. And so they get out onto tumultuous waters and Paul kind of takes over. He's a prisoner, probably in chains, along with a variety of other prisoners, but he knows that he's the most competent person on that ship. And so he steps up to take leadership. He prepares them. It's gonna get ugly. 
So you talked, you talked last week about having the bread and breaking the bread and having this last meal. Well, what ends up happening in chapter 28 is they shipwreck on the island of Malta. And they get there and the locals there arrive and, you know, they try to make contact with them. And there's this kind of clever uh, scene where Paul is helping to make a fire and then a snake bites him on the hand and he shakes it off like it's nothing. And the, and the people there take it as a miracle. They actually believe that Paul's a god. Uh, I kind of think of like C-3PO and the Ewoks and they're just like parading him around and he's just like, what is going on, you know? <laughs> I don't know if it's okay to Star Wars the episode there, but it's something like that. And they treat him as a god, and then they ask him if he would heal the sick among them, and Paul does. And it says he stays there for three months healing and ministering to the Maltese. And then, this is kind of interesting, it seems like he's kind of a legend and a hero, and yet he gets on a new boat and goes to Rome. He wants to finish what he'd started He wants to prove his innocence. So he joins this crew of people on this boat, and they end up in Rome. He's under house arrest for two years and invites Jews and Gentiles to hear about the kingdom of God and the lordship of Jesus. I want to talk about what we can gain from looking at chapter 28 when it comes to broadcasting the lifestyle person and message of Jesus as the church. Let's start with lifestyle. I want to paint a picture of the situation that Paul finds himself in on this boat. I'm imagining some of the people on the boat are prisoners and they're kind of in a chain gang. And I'm imagining some of the people on the boat are Roman soldiers, a centurion maybe, and then some of the people are sailors. These are three very different groups of people And you got to imagine some of them see each other as enemies. Paul, in the midst of a crisis, decides that he wants to step up as a leader. And there are probably no other believers on this boat, except some people think Luke was with Paul as a companion as he narrates this episode. Now, notice this. I don't know if you've ever noticed this before reading the book of Acts. Luke goes out of his way to say there were 276 people. That's a lot of people. And the people are in trouble. And Paul thinks, I care about these people. Some of those people are against Paul, right? Looking at Paul with suspicion as a criminal. Some of those people are other people accused of crimes. Some of them are rough and tough sailors. And Paul says, I don't care who these people are. I don't care what they've done. I want to make sure everybody makes it through this safely. What we learn from this scene is that Paul is living into the church's mission powered by God's infectious compassion. Time and time again, the apostles act out of the love and compassion of God For everybody, no matter what background you come from, no matter what you've been accused of. Then Paul gets to the island, and then he's invited to heal some people. 
And I looked it up because I have no idea how many people are in Malta. Today, there are about 500,000 people. There are probably less people then. So let's say 10,000. How many people did he heal? 300? 500? We're not talking like a two-hour healing session. We're talking days. He stayed there for three months. Was he healing for three long months? And why? Because of the compassion of God. And then he continues on to prison in Rome at his own expense. Why is he there? He's there to preach the kingdom to Jews and Gentiles, some of whom look at him with great suspicion. Paul's life was driven by the compassion of God. That's the lifestyle that he adopted from Jesus. Second, we broadcast the person of Jesus. I hadn't thought about this till it was pointed out to me in one of the books I read for today. Luke goes out of his way to mention that the people on the island of Malta are barbarians. What that meant was they weren't civilized according to Greco-Roman standards. Part of that package of them being civilized meant they didn't speak Greek or Latin. So then the question is, what are the chances that Paul speaks Maltese? Zero. There's zero chance. There was no Duolingo. There was no Maltese Duolingo. Let me just put that. There was no Rosetta Stone for Maltese. There's no Google Translate. Siri was only Rocky back then. I'm sorry, I don't understand that request. So Paul is there, he gets the snake bite, he shakes it off, they think he's a god. He can't correct that. He can't communicate the kingdom of God. He can't tell them who Jesus is. What he can do is embody the activity of God. I can't tell you in words who Jesus is, but I can be a living story of the love of God, the love and power of God. We have the ability to communicate far and wide with words, but we also have the ability to embody the activity of God wherever we go by being like Jesus. Third, Paul's in prison. And, and what I find fascinating about Acts 28 is that from one perspective, everything in the story, Acts 28, happens to Paul, right? The storm happens, the shipwreck happens, the snake bite happens, right? You know, the guards are still there with him on, on, uh, on Malta and so forth. But if you read it again with a different lens, Paul's in charge. Or better yet, God's in charge. There are sometimes cartoons, I was trying to think if this was Who Framed Roger Rabbit, where, you know, he's in handcuffs and then, you know, someone needs a handkerchief and he pulls his hands out and gives him a handkerchief and puts it back in. <laughs> like, as if it's like a show, like it's not real. And the way Paul behaves in these episodes is almost like he's pretending to be a prisoner so that he can accomplish apostolic ends. God has called him to preach in Rome. And so it's kind of funny, like 
He's on this island for three months. He's healed all their sick. He's earned a lot of goodwill. And then, I don't know if he learned Maltese in that time, but, but what do you want to do now, Paul? Well, got to get to Rome. I'm due for my trial. Like, he'd go anywhere, I imagine. Where did this boat come from? What happened to 276 people? But when it says that he spent two years under house arrest, like, I, I imagine even though he is a prisoner of Rome, he's running the show. Like, he's inviting people in, like, this is Publius, my guard. Publius, say hello, you know. <laughs> he's, he owns the place. Like, like he, he's, um, he's confident. Even this text says he's bold. He's boldly proclaiming the kingdom of God. And this is a challenge to me because I get really wimpy and whiny when things aren't going my way. And I just want chocolate, and I just want a nap. And Paul is in this worst of the worst situation, and he's acting like nothing can stop him. Nothing can stop me. And Luke ends by saying, no one tried to stop him. What does that tell us? That tells us that, is that no matter what's going on, the preaching of the kingdom is powerful when we're able to show how the kingdom of God can change the world by upending whatever is abusive, exclusive, and destructive. My question for you then is, are you willing to go public for Jesus? What the book of Acts tells us is, it can't happen without words but it also can't happen without lifestyle. We preach the gospel with sermons, with the message, but we also preach it with our whole life. This is the challenge of being on mission. The missional work of the kingdom of God is not meant to be placed in the hands of paid professionals like Pastor Mike. Mike is good at it, but it's meant for all of us. It's meant for all of us. And we will all have different parts and roles. We're not all going to be leading a big tent revival in a major football stadium. It's often going to happen in the small ways that we invite people in to see what God is doing in our communities, or in our lives, or in the lives of our friends. I know that some of you are going to feel some anxiety hearing this because it can cause a lot of shame and challenges because there are a lot of people out there who have been hostile to Christianity, sometimes for good reason. I want to give you three simple ways. You can just choose one if it's helpful to you for how you can start to think about going public for Jesus. Number one, write down your testimony. Write down your testimony. A testimony is not a theological treatise. It's not a systematic theology textbook. It doesn't have to have all this sophisticated language like ecclesiology and and Christology, I will give you bonus points if you put that in your testimony, but God doesn't give you bonus points for that. 
A testimony is simply, how is my life different and better because of what Jesus has said and done that's changed me? That's what a testimony is. How is your life different and better because, of, because Jesus and the church is in your life? If you're not used to going back through your life and doing kind of a testimonial, just start journaling today. Just write down signs of God's goodness in your life. It could be small things. It could be big things. It could be a cup of coffee. It could be sunshine. It could be a hug, an app. Just write down signs of goodness around you that you know come from the Father of heavenly lights. Number two, take a hard look at your own life. Take a look at your, your own life and ask yourself, but maybe you'll ask others to say about you, what does my life point to? What does my life point to? Does it point to my boat? Does it point to my toys? Does it point to how important I am at my work? Does it point to how good I am at this particular skill? Does it point to my clothes? What does my life point to? I, I, I have a spiritual director, uh, Morris Dirks, who's been talked about before here at New Hope. And he asked me, and he asked me these questions on a regular basis, what do you want to be true about you in 30 years? That's a similar question to what does my life point to? That's going to require a hard look. Because sometimes we are avoiding or dodging recognizing the realities of those questions and answers. Third, this is a good practical one. Take a text of scripture that outlines the lifestyle of faith and ask, how can I reflect these more? So for example, the fruit of the spirit, love, joy, peace, goodness, kindness, patience, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. How can I reflect these more? So maybe you'll take a week or a month and go through each one and say, am I reflecting the love of God? Am I reflecting joy, goodness, so forth? The book of Acts is so much fun to read. So many inspiring things in the book of Acts, healings, miracles, mission, baptism, conversion, response, shipwrecks, snake bites, all these exciting things are happening. And I'm sure over the last several months, you've been inspired by that. You've been inspired by what's happened. But perhaps you've also been challenged. Who am I to join into that mission? How could I, little old me, contribute to that? None of us are actually sufficient for these things. You weren't chosen to join the mission because of your intelligence, because of your wealth, because of a particular skill you have. You joined the mission because 
kingdom people love to proclaim the goodness of the king. Amen? In a minute, we're going to go to the table, the bread and the cup, the elements. Because I know that I experience some anxiety thinking about taking the gospel out there in the world. I feel like this is a safe place. (laughs) Once you go out there, anything goes. Anything can happen. But that's precisely why Jesus gave this meal. Jesus gave this meal because he knew that we couldn't go on mission in our own strength. That his, you know, strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. We are naturally wayward. So as you come to the table, I encourage you to think about two things. One is when you take the elements, when you eat the bread and drink from the cup, you are recognizing the presence of Christ with us through the Spirit and in in the context of the church. You're recognizing the presence of Christ. And where there is the presence of Christ, remember what I said earlier, you have the compassion of God. The compassion of God is the heart of God. Isn't that amazing? You can go to any store. At least this is our Protestant theology. You go to any store and buy bread and drink. And you can give it. And Christ is with you. No boundary, right? Remember, we don't exclude. There's no boundary. We take the bread. We take the cup. And we know Christ is with us because of the compassion of God. That's the first thing you should think about when you take the the bread and the cup. The second thing you should think about is a challenge. Because to come to the table is an act of faith. It's an act of faith. Hey, I want what Jesus is offering, and I'm willing to step into it and be a part of it. I'm willing to be held accountable to this community. I'm willing to invest in this community. I'm willing to be like Jesus in this community. I'm willing to broadcast the message, person, and lifestyle of Jesus as I sign up for this. You didn't know there could be so much in a little piece of bread, a little bit of drink, but that's all in there. I'm going to pray. I'd like to just ask the table host to come up as I'm giving instructions for the table. Um, We're going to have four tables here, and we'll have table hosts who you'll gather with and and take the elements and pray. Those of you in the balcony, we're going to have to come down. If you are not able to come down to the tables, then uh, just kind of wave at us, and we'll have someone come to you with the elements. Just a reminder, the elements are gluten-free. We have the kind of open elements, and then we also have the prepackaged if you want that as well. Let's pray. God, we thank you that we aren't called out on our own. We have the gift of your presence, your weighty, palpable presence that we experience in simple bread, simple drink. And we have the presence of each other. We have leadership. We have pastors. We have a support team. We have each other. We have regular rhythms of community. Help us as we take these elements 
to know your presence, hugging us, embracing us, and also pushing us, pushing us out of our comfort zone to share the compassion of God with the world. In Jesus' name, amen.